анкеты для, для службы безопасности. My job was to write 20 news articles a day full of pro-Kremlin propaganda, he says, and then share the articles using fake online accounts I created with photos taken from real profiles, usually women, because they were considered more trustworthy. A Russian cyber troll says Canada's next federal election will be targeted by the Kremlin. I'm Nikki Reitmeyer, and this is Why. Russia. It's the largest country in the world. It spans 11 time zones. It's home to 144 million people. And it's also the center of the web for cyber hacks, election meddling, and propaganda against the Western world, including Canada. Tonight, Facebook is taking new steps to stop election meddling. The term Kremlin troll is a known thing in Russia, but Americans and Canadians weren't prepared for it. We're paid internet provocateurs, worked 12-hour shifts, distorting the U.S. political debate. The U.S. Justice Department has charged 12 Russians with hacking offenses. It's part of an investigation by special counsel Robert Mueller into alleged meddling in the 2016 presidential election. After last week's school shooting in Parkland, Florida, Twitter was flooded with messages, and much of this Twitter activity was directly tied to Russian accounts. A big goal of a lot of these influence campaigns are just an opportunity to not only grab attention, but to sow a little bit of discord. In fact, the CV a new report about Russia's efforts to stir up racial conflict right now inside the United States. Eleven of the defendants are charged with conspiring to hack into computers, steal documents, and release those documents with the intent to interfere in the election. Global News foreign correspondent Jeff Semple recently visited Russia to try to figure out what cyber threat Russia actually poses against our country. Hey, Jeff, can you hear me? Hey, yes, I can. Is that Nikki? It is Nikki. How are you doing? Not too bad. How are you? I'm doing well. Whereabouts in the world are we talking to you from today? I am in London today. Back Ooh, home. very nice. St. Petersburg it was my first time there. I've been to Moscow a few times, but St. Petersburg feels much different than even Moscow and actually probably feels more like... Um, you know, what we're used to in Canada, in sort of hip neighborhoods in Toronto or Vancouver. I mean, it feels very hip. It feels very youthful, you know, kind of a, an edgy hipster scene in certain neighborhoods. And it's also extremely beautiful. Uh, you have the river running through. You've got the, you know, famous palaces and cathedrals. In terms of nightlife, it's quite well known, particularly, you know, among Russians uh, for having a great nightlife. In many respects, it um, it did feel like, um, you know, kind of a, a hip neighborhood, uh, of course, with some mixed in with, with Europe and a little European vibe and, and, of course, the beautiful Russian architecture. The image that I have in my mind is that it's this cool, hip, modern city that has this underbelly of deception and, you know, cyber mischief. It seems like two totally opposite ideas functioning within one city. Yeah, and I mean, you do sort of get that sense. I mean, you know, in, in Moscow as well as St. Petersburg, you, you get off, you know, the plane and it is a little bit jarring because you've heard all of these stories, you know, of, of 
this underworld of, of trolls and hackers and you know, Russian meddling, yeah, you know, geopolitics, all that sort of stuff. And of course, none of that hits you in the face when you're walking around the city. I think, you know, in, in a place like North Korea, for example, you get off the plane, you're immediately met by a minder and they take you everywhere you go and they basically only show you exactly what they want you to see. And it's, it's a propaganda parade. Uh, if you like, whereas in Russia, you know, it is, you know, there are people just going about their day to day lives. They're happy to chat with you as a journalist. It's quite easy to actually operate in doing basic stuff anyway. I mean, if you want to talk to people in a park, that's fine. If you want to, you know, take the subway, if you want to interview a politician, whatever. I mean, all of that stuff is, is pretty straightforward. I'm curious to know what they think of Canada. What's their opinion on us? When you ask them that, the first thing they say is, oh, hockey, right? So because uh, they feel like that's, you know, our, our national pastimes are shared uh, and Russians take their hockey pretty seriously and they're pretty good at it. And so, of course, we have a long standing rivalry with them on the ice, uh, geopolitics aside. And I think generally speaking, for an average, an ordinary Russian, and at least the ones we managed to speak with, when they think of Canada politically, they think of Canada as being just sort of a, an extension of the United States. You know, I don't think that there's they see a real distinction there. And I mean, to be fair, that's that's pretty true of, of a lot of people in countries outside of North America. Right. Although obviously Canada politically and, and the Americans politically have been on different paths. And because of the souring relations between Russia and the U.S., they do sort of feel like their relations with Canada have soured politically, which is, you know, they're not happy about. I think, you know, can Canadians almost anywhere in the world have a pretty good reputation. And I think Russians would like to be building bridges with their with their friends in Canada, uh, particularly given, um, you know, our affinity for uh, ice sports. A lot of Russians have a, a chip on their shoulder because they feel like they're portrayed as big, bad Russia. And, you know, every time it rains in North America, well, it must be the Russians' fault, right? Personally, I mean, having, you know, reported on Russia and, and seeing the news, I do think that sometimes the Russian boogeyman um, is just that. It's, it's a myth. It's, it's, it's overblown. It's exaggerated. But, I mean, you know, having said that, I think it, it works both ways as well. But Russians themselves, you know, traditionally, they've always sort of gotten their news, gotten their information from their television, uh, their big television news junkies, uh, at least they used to be, the older generation, and that is just pumped full of pro-Kremlin propaganda. The Kremlin funds the major TV stations in Russia, so they control the message, and it's, you know, a complete alternate universe if you turn on the news in Russia versus turning on the news in Canada or the United States or here in London, UK. Yeah, it's so interesting because it, it has been on my mind, you know, why has Russia seemingly become this epicenter for fake news and for cyber mischief. But from what you're saying, it sounds like it all trickles back to the very structure and culture of their government. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a, you know, obviously their government's adversarial, like longstanding adversarial relationship with the West and the United States in particular, you know, and I think the Russians tend to sort of look at a lot of the problems in the world and point their finger at the United States. There's a, an expression uh, in Russia called whataboutism. And basically, every time you ask a Russian, you know, 
what do you have to say about this, you know, alleged hacking attack or cyber warfare or trolls? They'll say, well, what about the United States? And then they'll, they'll try and find some historic example where the U.S., you know, stuck their hands where they didn't belong. So, yeah, I mean, you know, of course, you know, this, this adversarial relationship has deep, deep roots in history. I think, you know, a lot of ordinary Russians um, would, would like to see better relations with the West, but most of them blame the sour relations, not on their government, but on the Western world and, and on the United States administration and, and on the Prime Minister of Canada. Coming up later in this episode. We were the pioneers of this work, he says. I never imagined then that it would become an international story. You're listening to This Is Why. Subscribe now for free on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your favorite shows. If I asked you what a troll is, what would you say? Probably something that lives under a bridge or those things that we used to collect when we were kids with the fluorescent hair and the jewels in the belly. That's what I think about trolls. Right, but you are on social media, right? Well, for sure. So then what is the new definition of troll? Probably somebody that just like goes on social media looking to just tear down people and, you know, make them feel terrible and trolls are just out there to tear you down. I think an internet troll is someone who takes advantage of the internet and uses it in a way that is detrimental to others to bully them. Jeff Semple is a Global News foreign correspondent who recently visited a troll factory in St. Petersburg, Russia. So let's talk about this infamous troll factory, because the image that comes to mind, of course, is that it's a big old warehouse where ugly mythological creatures who are bound to live under bridges are born. But that's not what a troll factory is, is it? No, no bridges. Uh, <laughs> that's for sure. And it definitely does not look like any sort of evil layer. I mean, it's a pretty boring, bland, nondescript office tower. It's a few stories tall. Um, and, you know, and the people who work there, again, it was in St. Petersburg. We're talking about the sort of hip young scene. I mean, and many of them look like hipsters. Uh, we talked to one of them, Vitaly Vespalov, who uh, got a job there. Early on, back in, in 2014, he was an aspiring young journalist. He just moved to St. Petersburg looking for work, and he responded to an online advertisement for what he thought was a job working for a Russian news website. He thought it was a job in journalism, and you know, but it only took a couple of days before he realized he'd been hired as a professional troll. The term Kremlin troll is a known thing in Russia, but Americans and Canadians weren't prepared for it, he said. His job then was to write basically fake news and, and propaganda-filled stories about Ukraine. My job was to write 20 news articles a day full of pro-Kremlin propaganda, he says, and then share the articles using fake online accounts I created with photos taken from real profiles, usually women, because they were considered more trustworthy. And then he would post those articles everywhere on the Internet, from online dating websites to Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and so forth. We were the pioneers of this work, he says. I never imagined then that it would become an international story. That's pretty basic sort of system that they started with. But as we know now, 
that evolved. So after, you know, in the months and years that followed, we've learned that these trolls got very sophisticated. Their posts reached up to 50 million people every single week, according to one Russian investigative journalist we spoke to. There were thousands of tweets in particular that mentioned Canada and Canadian issues. Uh, and a lot of those, uh, you know, basically they said the, the priority, of course, was the United States, but that Canada, because we're so close to the United States, you know, in terms of our relationship and our geography, the Canadians were also targeted. And the subjects were often Canada-U.S. relations, uh, migration, you know, Syrian refugees. Basically, these trolls, and we've seen many of the tweets that they produce, they would not just necessarily pick one side of a debate, but they would, you know, different accounts fighting on both sides. So according to the former troll that we spoke to, the, the real goal here was to sow division and to try and increase tension in Western countries. I mean, these trolls literally in the United States not only organized but funded political rallies on both sides. There were hundreds of people that turned out to some of these rallies. Some of them got violent because there were counter rallies across the street. So, you know, their goal apparently was to sow division and their success in that regard is pretty hard to deny. Man, that's next level. Not only are they trying to, you know, sell the propaganda of one side of a debate or one side of an argument, but they're doing both just to create chaos and division. Yeah, and I mean, you know, the theory goes that if you're the Kremlin, Vladimir Putin, trying to sort of paint a picture of the Western version of democracy as being chaotic, you know, this troll factory makes complete sense and has been effective. The image of the West and people in the United States and Canada just at each other's throats all the time is a popular one in Russia. And it's one that, you know, as we say, has been fueled by these trolls so this young hipster troll that you spoke to, this young man, did he give you any indication that he knew or believed that what he was doing, creating propaganda, creating division around the world was morally wrong in any sense? Yeah, well, he did. And I mean, I think he realized from what he told us, you know, after a few days that uh, this was not something that he was comfortable doing. He says that he decided to keep doing it for a few months under the theory that he would then quit and tell his story. Uh, and he did. Uh, he worked there for a few months, got out, and then wrote an article about it a little bit later, anonymously at first, though he's now since spoken a little bit more publicly, including, of course, giving us an interview and his name. Should be said, though, that he does that at great risk to himself, that he has been targeted by the Russian press, stories about him portraying him as a drug addict, for example. So it's a dangerous thing to do to speak out in the way that he did. But he felt because he was so uncomfortable with it, because he believes that it was morally wrong, that he has a responsibility to speak out, which is why he spoke out so bravely to us. What's the public perception on Vladimir Putin around young people in, in Russia? Because, you know, here you are telling the story of this young man who seems to be rebelling against the system. Is he alone in that fight? What's the general public thinking? Yeah, you know, that was one of the, the key questions we were hoping to explore. You know, what do young people think of politics in their country? And especially when you consider, of course, Nikki, that President Putin first rose to power 18 years ago. And he has been there either as president or prime minister ever since. So you have a whole generation. They're called the Putin generation, where they have no memory of any other political leader besides Vladimir Putin. And many of them voted for him for the first time in that last election in March. Isn't that funny? You know, we have millennials and they have the Putin generation. That's right. <laughs> and there, they, you know what? And there are a lot of similarities, right? And I think 
the biggest one is that they are, you know, more connected than ever before, right? Because these young people don't get their news the same way that their parents did from the Kremlin-controlled TV. They get their news the same way that millennials in Canada get their news from the Internet. Uh, and, you know, there are young people walking around in Russia, just like in Canada, with their heads buried in their phones, right? Walking into traffic. So they're always online. They're on Facebook. And Russia's TV news is, is pretty tightly controlled by the Kremlin. The Internet in Russia, it's worth noting, is, is pretty open. So there aren't a lot of restrictions. It's easy uh, for a young Russian to go online, go on Facebook, and read an article on the BBC or on Global News. And that's why we were so surprised to see some polling that has been done recently by an independent polling firm that found that 86% of young Russian adults, so we're talking between the ages of 18 and 24, approve of their president. Wow. And that is an even higher rate than their parents. A lot of the young people we talked to spoke about stability under President Putin, economically especially. And it's also worth noting that since President Putin came to power 18 years ago, the standard of living has improved dramatically. The 90s were brutal, right? And for young Russians, they look at their standard of living, their way of life, and it's improved significantly over the course of their lifetime. They're aware, you know, a lot of them told us that they wish that he'd stop picking fights internationally, stop getting involved in Syria, Ukraine. Um, they don't like the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia as a result. That those have hurt the economy. But the youth we talked to are pretty pragmatic about it. I mean, they, they're willing to accept Putin's iron fist in return for what they see as economic stability, and they feel that their way of life has, has improved substantially uh, under his rule. Russia, along with China, has been identified as Canada's top security threat. And yes, we are vulnerable to Russian aggression. Is Ottawa doing enough to safeguard our elections from Russia? Canada has been unequivocal in our condemnation of Vladimir Putin and Russia. Uh, A natural question would be, should we expect fake news campaigns in our 2019 election? Good question. No doubt Canada's next federal election will be targeted. So ultimately, you know, what does this mean for Canada? Because we know that the U.S. has been affected by Russian propaganda, by the fake news, by the, the trolls in the troll factory. We have an upcoming election here. Is Canada at risk? Yeah, so according to Vitaly Vespalov, the troll that we spoke to, we also spoke with a couple of other uh, journalists who have done you know, excellent work on this story, have our regular contact with you know many of these trolls. They say that there's very little doubt that Canada's election will be targeted next year, that our federal election will be targeted by the trolls at least, um, perhaps you know Russian hackers, that there's just no question that that will happen. The question, of course, always is how much impact that type of thing can actually have, practically speaking. I mean, Twitter recently identified three million tweets as coming from the troll factory, though it admits there there may well have been many more. But of those three million tweets, Thousands mentioned Canada, but that's a fraction, uh, you know, and, and the, so the question becomes, practically speaking, can even a small army of trolls and thousands of tweets actually influence a Canadian election one way or the other? Uh, it's a difficult question to answer, but Vitaly Bespalov, the Russian troll, said it's easy to discount the impact that the trolls can have, but he said that, it, of course, in cases where the race is tight, 
particular riding, for example, there where it's a tight race, every vote matters, of course. And so potentially these trolls could have an impact. And Vitaly Vespalov believes that's exactly what happened in the case of the last U.S. election in 2016. So I think Vitaly Vespalov was quite... Um, you know, explicit saying that Canadians need to pay attention, that they need to be on guard, they need to be vigilant, they need to second guess things that they're seeing on Twitter, on Facebook. On Facebook, for example, there were 80,000 different posts that Facebook recently released of that, that it cited as coming from the, from the troll factory. Political advertising on Facebook, for example, doesn't necessarily have the power to sway someone's opinion to change their vote, but it could get them, inspire them to act on their pre-existing beliefs. So if they're already suspicious of refugees, for example, or newcomers to Canada, and they then are exposed to fake news about you know, a refugee attacking someone, then that could potentially make a difference in the minds of the voter in next year's election. Jeff, thank you so much. It's been really interesting talking to you. Yeah, my pleasure, Nikki. Great to chat with you. So what is the Canadian government doing to protect us against Russian meddling in our next election? In the spring, Bill C-76, also known as the Election Modernization Act, was introduced. That bill proposes making it illegal for organizations to accept foreign advertising with the intent of influencing Canadian elections. That bill is still being studied and reviewed. Elections Canada says that it'll be investing in a tool that allows the agency to monitor social media activity, to look out for trolls. And the federal government has allocated $7.1 million over the next five years to better protect our future elections from any kind of threat. Will it all pay off? I guess we'll find out in 2019. This is Why is produced by John O'Dowd and myself, Nikki Reitmeyer. We're a national radio show and a podcast. So to re-listen to this episode or any past episodes, subscribe for free online at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts from. You can find us on Twitter at This Is Why, or email us with your thoughts and your story ideas to thisiswhy at curiouscast.ca. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.